So um, I don't know, like, like some of you, um, Disney Plus has become just a normal thing in our household. And it's really not just for little kids. I find myself watching Disney Plus a lot. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, like some of you, I got into a show uh, on Disney Plus. Uh, it's called The Mandalorian. Any, any like Star Wars fans in the house? Okay, okay. Calm, calm, calm down. All right. Uh, you know, like, okay. Um, <clears throat> lightsaber comes out of nowhere. So there's this, there's a show called The Mandalorian. Even if you're not like a Star Wars fan, I'm not necessarily like a Star Wars fan, but I, I kind of got into this show called The Mandalorian. But even if you don't know what that is, like you've probably seen this like random creature grace your social media timeline at one point, or you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. You know, like, what is this? Did gremlins come back? Like what exactly? Is it this baby Yoda? I know that's not his name, but I'm not a super fan. So there's, I know, Groku is his name. Sounds like a Pokemon. So um, this, this, this show called The Mandalorian, it's, it's about this, um, follows this, it's a Star Wars spinoff, and it follows this bounty hunter. It follows this bounty hunter from the planet Mandalore. And these bounty hunters, um, I know, so Christian, these bounty hunters, um, they like kind of track down these different people that have like hits out on them. But what struck me about these Mandalorians, they're like these soldiers, they have this code of ethics. Like these Mandalorians, they, they have this way of doing things, this kind of, this, this behavior, these things that they've just committed to. And no matter how countercultural or kind of counterintuitive in this kind of Star Wars world um, that they're living in, they are committed to living out their commitment. And, and whenever they have like a big decision or whenever something big happens, like whenever there's a big moment, this, this is what stood out to me. These Mandalorian soldiers, they'll kind of look at each other and they'll say they're kind of, you know, about to make a big decision or about to do something that's kind of sounds crazy or looks crazy. And they just look at each other and they just say, this is the way. And the response is always the same. This is the way. In other words, here's what they're saying. This is what we've committed to when we took the vow to be a Mandalorian. This is what we think is the best way. This is how we do things. And, and even if you're like, okay, I don't know anything about these Mandalorians, you understand that. You understand that in different areas of your life, there is just a way of doing things, right? Like if you work somewhere, right? There's just a, a way of doing things at your job. There's a way of doing things. Like that's just kind of the culture. This is how you do it. Um, in your apartment, okay, there's a way. There's a way that you're supposed to keep your room clean or the sinks, you know, out of, out of, the, out of the, the dishes out of the sink. Like there's just, this is how we do it. In class, right, there's a way. Your professor has certain ways in which it operates. Like if, you got a, if you're on a sports team or, you know, you're part of some kind of organization or story or fraternity, this is how we do things. And so as you've guessed it, um, we're kicking off a brand new series. And, and if you're like, ah, what, what exactly is a series? A uh, brand new series was basically just us taking an idea and unpacking it for a few weeks. We're, we're, we're kicking off a brand new series called This Is The Way, where we are going to be unpacking what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we're gonna wrestle with the implication, and this is, this is so important, we're gonna wrestle with the implication that what Jesus first invited his followers into in the first century, he did not invite them just to believe something, he invited them to follow. He invited them into a way of 
doing things. He invited them into a way of being. He invited them into a way of living. He invited them into a way of loving. He invited them into a way of ordering their lives. And so the hope of this series over the next few weeks is this, that we would recapture, that we would recapture what it means to follow Jesus. For some of you, define for the first time what in the world does it mean to follow Jesus? And for others of you, redefine and recapture what it means to follow Jesus by taking it back to its first century roots. Now, here's the tension. If you're taking notes, this is worth writing down. Here's kind of the tension of the entire series, and we're gonna wrestle with this week in and week out. And it's this. You can be a Christian and not follow in the way of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, if you grew up in church, this might make you a little bit uncomfortable, but just give me a second and just lean into it. If you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, that's why I don't like y'all, okay? <clears throat> you can be a Christian, and you can believe in Jesus, and you can believe that he died and he rose from the grave, and you've put your faith in him six times because you're nervous it didn't work the first time, you know what I'm talking about? We've all been there, done that, okay? Um, like, you've done that, and, and you're good, and, and you're, you're, you're gonna go to heaven, but not follow in his way. You can have a belief but not follow. And what Christians, this is, this is so telling to me and kind of illuminates for me kind of this tension that we're living in today. Um, what the first Christians called themselves in the first century, like, like right when Jesus lived on the earth and after his death and resurrection, what Christians called themselves in the first century is so, so telling. And it's so, so interesting because the first Christians, the first Christians, they did not call themselves Christians. Like Jesus' disciples who were trying to figure out how to do life after he re resurrected from the grave and was no longer walking on earth, they did not call themselves Christians. In fact, the term Christian, it only shows up three times in your New Testament. And in every context, it's in a negative context, in a derogatory context. The word Christian, it was not a religious term in the first century. The term Christian, it was a political term. It was an identifier that this group of people that, that talked about this resurrected savior and they followed him, they'd become a prominent enough group of people that they needed some kind of name. They needed some kind of identifier. And so they were called Christians, little Christs, or those that belonged to the party of Jesus. They didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, the term Christian was given by those outside of the faith because they just needed a name for these crazy people. What Christians in the first century called themselves is this. They called themselves followers of the way. In fact, there's this incredible moment. The Apostle Paul, if you grew up in church, you've heard about the Apostle Paul. If you, even if you haven't grown up in church, you probably heard about him. He wrote over half of the letters and documents found for us in the New Testament. Super influential Christian, like the most influential Christian that ever lived. I mean, he planted churches all over the Mediterranean Rim. And, um, but the, the Apostle Paul had this moment in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts comes right after the Gospels. And the book of Acts talks about the launch in the explosion of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul, he's got this moment where people are accusing him of all these different things um, because they're tired of how effective he is in spreading the gospel. And so um, the, the, the Pharisees, who were the Jewish leaders of the day, they were super anti-Paul. And so Paul finds himself on trial in Acts chapter 24. He finds himself on trial, and the, the Jewish Pharisees, the high 
priest, they brought charges against him. And so Governor Felix, who was kind of um, the, the Roman representative, Rome ruled the world, the Roman representative that kind of looked over Judea um, in that part of the world, um, he's, uh, Paul's on trial in front of them. And the apostle Paul says this in Acts chapter 24. He says, hey, all the things that you've said I've done, I'm not guilty of. However, however, Mr. High Priest and Mr. Governor Felix, Mr. President, however, I do admit, if I'm guilty of anything, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. And this little Greek word here, the way, it's a designation, it's found multiple times throughout the book of Acts. And what this word means, it's so fascinating. This word, the way, it literally means, it literally means a teaching, a teaching in the most comprehensive sense. Or another direct translation for that one little Greek word, the way, is this, a whole way of life. That for the earliest Christians, this is so important, for the earliest Christians, following Jesus was not just about trying to get to heaven one day. For the first Christians, following Jesus affected everything about life here on earth right now. That there was no area of their life that was unaffected by the way of Jesus. That to follow Jesus was a way of doing life as defined by Jesus, who invited them not just to believe, but to follow a way of doing and being and serving and loving and ultimately becoming. And if we're just being honest, okay, and I'm just, just for, the, for, the, for the Jesus followers in the room, if you're not a Jesus follower, you can, you can like amen this if you want, okay? Come on, just for the Jesus followers, just a second. The idea of being a follower of Jesus today, it's become a little bit cliche, hasn't it? Like, it's what we call cultural Christianity. Like, to say that you follow Jesus, and, and I'm guilty of this too, okay? So I'm not trying to like hate on anybody. Like this is so easy to do. Like when I say I follow Jesus, it's so easy for me just to think of it in terms of a belief statement. That when we say we follow Jesus, a lot of times it's a belief statement more than a personal mission statement. It's like a descriptor of what I believe about Jesus rather than this is how I live my life. And here's a sad reality for many of us. And I'm just, come on. Right, I, I, I get this. This is the temptation for me too. And I'm a professional Christian, okay? That, literally, <clears throat> I get paid to be a Christian. Um, but it's awesome. Um, not very much. Okay, so that following Jesus for far too many has just kind of turned into the consumption of church, showing up on Wednesday nights, you know, a couple times a month whenever school or whatever you got going on doesn't get in the way, and then you just kind of catch up on the podcast. Maybe you dabble with a, a Bible reading plan, you know, you really get into it with whatever worship song you're really listening to these days, but we so easily forget all those things that we do are a means to an end of becoming better followers of the way of Jesus. Now, let me unpack, let me unpack this, this tension and I'm, I'm super passionate about this idea. It's been convicting me. I've, I've, I talked to our whole church about this earlier this year. Like this has just been such a huge point of conviction for my heart and my mind and something I wish I understood when I was in college. Let me just kind of paint this picture for you, okay? Here's what you know is true. You can be convinced of something but not committed to it. Like, 
Like this is just normal life. You can be convinced that something is good. You can be convinced that something is true. You can be convinced that something is beneficial, but not committed to making it a reality in your life. And like literally just take this out of the realm of faith for a second. Y'all get this. We wrestle with this every single day. Like you can be convinced that eating healthier is good for you. But Chick-fil-A is gooder for you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that new pimento cheese, gosh. Even though it costs 17 and a half dollars, you know what I mean? But come on. Like you can be convinced. You can be convinced that flossing is good for you. But when you go get your teeth cleaned, you're like, I'm gonna bleed out. I'm gonna bleed out. This is how I go. Like this is it's right here. I'm, you're gonna get shredded. You know it on your way to the dentist. You know what I'm saying? Come on, convinced but not committed. You get this. Like you can be convinced that you need to figure out how to keep a budget and you promised your mom or your dad or whoever's helping you pay for school or maybe you're doing it for your, you're paying your own way through school that you're like, I gotta stick to a budget and you're like, I'm convinced that's a good idea. But then you do something stupid, like you walk into Target, do you know what I mean? Like, you buy everything. It's just, you can be convinced that studying a little bit more or getting more sleep is good for you. But we watch Netflix until it asks us if we're still watching. Do you know what I mean? Like, you get this tension. Convinced, but not committed. Convinced that something is good true and beneficial, but not committed to making it a reality in your life. And this is how, my friends, this is how you can be a follower of Jesus. This is how you can be a believer in Jesus, but not committed to his way. Beneficial, following Jesus, good for me. Okay, there's some good there. I believe that, I believe in his grace, I believe in his love, but I'm committed to actually following. And I don't know, maybe because in moments it's inconvenient to follow Jesus. Maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's difficult. But what's true for all of us that believe in Jesus is that's the temptation. That we believe in him for our eternal security. I'm going to heaven, I think, but not committed to following. And I'm just telling you, this would have been such a foreign and alien concept to the first ever followers Jesus. In fact, that word follow, it's kind of like, it's had a resurgence in our culture. Like before social media, no one really talked about following. That was called stalking, okay? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like since social media though, the word follow is just a very normal thing. It's not, it's not illegal to say I follow someone, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because social media, is, and, and here's what's so interesting. The word follow today, it's a very fluid concept. You can follow whoever you want on social media. You, you can do it as easy as pressing a button. You can follow who you like. You can unfollow who you don't like. You can follow someone when you feel like and unfollow them just as easily as you follow them. You can follow them until they offend you and then you can unfollow them when you disagree with them. It's such a fluid concept. There's no commitment. It's not like you're, you're like, oh man, am I gonna follow them or not because I'm locked in for the next six years and I can't unfollow them on Instagram. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's fluid. But when Jesus extended the invitation to follow, it was tangible, it was literal, it was all, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, all consuming. Don't miss this. Following Jesus isn't less than belief, but according to Jesus, it was more. Which is why, and, and a lot of you, you know this, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but it's why his first 
words to his disciples. They weren't come believe in me, it was come follow me. Like Matthew chapter four, verse 18. He said, he's documenting this. He says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And so Jesus looked at him and he said, come follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So at once, what did they do? They literally left their net and they got up and they quite literally followed him. Going on from there, Matthew tells us, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately, they literally left the boat, and they left their father, and they stopped what they were doing, and they followed Jesus. And then a little while later, Matthew chapter nine, the same Matthew that wrote this gospel, the tax collector, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And what did Matthew do? He literally quit his job. He quit his job. Like imagine like these tax collector booths, they had like a window. Like imagine you're working the Chick-fil-A drive-thru or something and then someone says, follow me. And you're like, see ya, you know? And it's like, and he quit his job and he followed Jesus. Jesus was inviting them to come be his disciples. Jesus was inviting them to come be his students. Now, this is really, really important. Jesus, who, right, if, if you're a follower of Jesus today, and even if you're not, you, you, what we sing about Jesus, that we, we say he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the risen son of God, but Jesus had another, another title back in the first century, and it was that of a rabbi. And rabbi is just Jewish, or Hebrew, excuse me, the Jewish term, the Hebrew term for teacher. It's the Hebrew word for teacher. So in the Jewish culture, a rabbi had a very significant Role. And to understand the dynamic, to understand in the Jewish context, in the Jewish culture, um, the, 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 wow, that was difficult. Let's try that again. The dynamic between a rabbi and the student, I wanna give you a little bit of a history lesson on the um, Jewish educational system, okay, back in the first century. It had three tiers, okay? So this is so interesting, just geek out with me for just a second. The first level of education, the first level of education was called Beit Sefer, and Beit Sefer is literally means house of the book. Okay, this was ages six to 10. So this is like elementary school. You go into grade school and you're learning arithmetic and reading and, and all that good stuff, but you're also learning, you're, you're in synagogue, it's at synagogue, that's where the, the, the schooling would be, re, math, reading, all that stuff, but then you're also learning the law, you're learning Torah. And this is crazy. What these six to 10 year olds would do is they would learn and memorize Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. They'd memorize them. My kids sing Baby Shark, you know? And they're memorizing Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then, so that's what they would do in Beit Sefer. But, but then most of the students, most of the students um, would, draw, would, would finish their education in Beit Sefer and then they would go do whatever the family trade was. If your dad was a fisherman, you'd go be a fisherman. If your dad worked in the market, you'd go help him run the shop in the market. But the best of the best out of Beit Sefer, they would then graduate and get to learn in what was called Beit Talmud. Beit Talmud was literally, literally means house of learning. This was for boys ages 10 to 14. And in Beit Talmud, they would learn the art of answering a question by asking a question, right? Jesus does that throughout the Gospels where someone asks you a question and you don't give them an answer, you hit them right back with a question and it's all smart. That's where they learned this. But then, from there, 
If you, you know, for some people, if that's as far as you went, you kind of went into the family trade. But then the best of the best, like the Harvard boys, like, like this would not have been me. I mean, like the top of the class, valedictorian, like 4.9 million GPA, do you know what I mean? Like all the AP classes, goes into college a junior, we hate y'all. Like <clears throat> the best of the best would go get to study in what was known as Beit Midrash, which was called House of Study. This was for ages 15 and up. And right here in Beit Midrash, students would get the opportunity to study under a rabbi. What would happen is people that made it into this level, um, they would get grilled by rabbis. They would get interviewed. And they would get grilled. And and the interview was basically to figure out whether or not um, this student knew Torah enough, they knew the law enough, like, like whether or not they had enough potential, whether or not they had the potential to maybe be a rabbi one day. And this is so fascinating. If a rabbi deemed a student smart enough, with enough potential, they would give them the same invitation that Jesus gave his disciples in the Gospels. A rabbi would look at a potential student and he'd say, come follow me. You've got what it takes, so come follow me. And they quite literally followed. In, in, in the Jewish culture, this was a huge honor. This was a massive deal, and it was reserved for a select few. And the Greek word for disciple, right? I know we kind of talked about like um, a student. You could say a disciple is like a student. But the Greek word for disciple, the best word, kind of English word, that captures exactly what this means. If you were to look up the Greek word for disciple in a Greek dictionary, this is the, the most accurate English translation, It's an apprentice, an apprentice, okay? Like, you know this, a student, an apprentice is one step beyond a student, okay? You can be a student of something just to learn. Like, you sit in big lecture halls, and you're a student. Like, I I went to the University of Georgia, and I was, took accounting, and I was a student in my accounting class. Hardly. I was not an apprentice of my accounting teacher. Now, I mentioned, um, I worked at Chick-fil-A, that was, uh, in high school, like three months. It didn't last very long. Um, but this is crazy. When I worked there, when the milkshakes first came out and the milkshake machines got delivered and we had to learn how to make them, in that moment, I became an apprentice of my manager who was showing us how to work these machines. You can be a student just to learn something, but an apprentice, don't miss this. An apprentice seeks to learn in order to be just like their teacher. And so what is happening here in the first century? The ultimate goal of these apprentices of these rabbis was for them to be just like their rabbis in every conceivable way. Like their only job was to be a carbon copy of their rabbi. It was to think like them, to do as they did. Like they would share meals with them. They would spend every day, every waking hour with their rabbi in order to be with them, to do what they did, to think as they thought, to argue as they argued. In fact, there's a legend, we don't know if this is totally true, but there is historical legend that says that um, whenever you had a rabbi with like a limp, you know, because he like, I don't know, hurt his ankle or hurt his knee or was just getting old, you'd see his, his healthy apprentices follow him with a limp. Why? Because the goal was to be just like. There was a common blessing 
in the first century um, to these young apprentices of rabbis, and this was, the, this was the blessing, so interesting. The blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea being this, back then, like paved roads were only reserved for the richest and biggest cities, and in first century Palestine and where Jesus walked and ministered, like there were not many paved roads, and so here's the idea. As you are following your rabbi, may the dust and the sand from the roads that gets kicked up from his sandals, may you be covered in it by the end of the day because you followed so closely. To be an apprentice was to model your life in every conceivable way around that of your teacher. And it is within that very context in the Gospels that Jesus looks at these fishermen and this tax collector and he says, come, follow me. And while our culture is different today, the invitation and the goal hasn't changed. Jesus' teaching is clear. He has not invited us just to believe. He's inviting us into something bigger and better to follow, in fact, to follow Jesus, and this is worth writing down, to follow Jesus is to order your life around the way of Jesus. To follow Jesus, it's not just a belief thing. To follow him is to order your life around his way. And, and almost immediately, so Matthew chapter four, he calls his first disciples, right? John and James and those guys, he calls his first disciples. And immediately after Matthew chapter four, what comes next? Not a true question. Matthew chapter five. All right, y'all wouldn't have made it out of the first level. Okay, so I'm just kidding. Matthew chapter five. So out of Matthew chapter four, he calls his first disciples. And then what happens next? He goes right into Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five is Jesus's most famous teaching it's his longest recorded sermon, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's main teaching on what it means to be his follower. It's his main teaching on what it means to live out the kingdom values that he came to establish. And even if you're not sure what you do or don't believe about faith, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, it's at the very least the best way to be a human. Before Jesus told them, I am the way, he modeled and taught them the way, his way to life. In fact, one of my favorite, one of my favorite authors, he's, he's passed away, um, but he's more than author, he's this brilliant theologian and philosopher. His name is Dallas Willard. He wrote this, about Jesus, which I, I found just so compelling and, 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 and so helpful. He wrote this, he says, many people, many people think of Jesus as our savior. He died and he saved me by grace as the one who will get us into heaven. So the question often is, and maybe you grew up where this was the question, have I accepted Jesus as my savior? It's not a bad question. But then Dallas goes on, but we never ask the question, have I accepted Jesus, this is so powerful, as my teacher? And that's the real question. With the disciples, it began there. They began by accepting him as their teacher and then, and then accepting him as their savior, which included, of course, their eternal destiny was a natural overflow, outflow of that. But they started with Jesus as their teacher. 
This is so powerful, so practical, so real, because we all have to learn how to live. We all have to learn how to be human. We all have to learn how to navigate different seasons of our lives. We all have to learn, you have to learn how to get through these next five, four, six, seven years of your young adulthood. And I don't mean like seven years of college. I mean, but it's okay. No judgment. You're welcome here. I was just saying in general, the next season of your life. We all have to learn how to live. So Jesus, remember, they wouldn't have seen him as savior. They would have seen him as teacher. Matthew chapter five, what does he do? He sit, sit, did I just hear something? He sits down. That was weird. God? Okay. He sits, <laughs> he sits down. Watch this. I'm oh, sorry. Okay, I gotta recover. <laughs> Okay. All right, I need y'all to be good or I'm never gonna be good, okay? Can y'all stop laughing? Okay. Matthew chapter five. When Jesus saw the crowds, now you've got the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. That's what rabbis would do before they taught. And his disciples, the one that he's called to call him, not all the crowds, but the, a small group of people, and his disciples, they came to him and he began to teach them. And Matthew chapter five, Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them about life in his way. And we don't have time to read the whole Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you to go to read it. I wanna give you the highlights. He kind of gives this introduction of the sermon in the Beatitudes. And then he kind of gives this overall vision. He's like, listen, if you live this way, you're gonna be the salt of the earth and you're gonna be the light of the world. In other words, he's saying, hey, if you, were to, if you were to do these things, the world will be a better place because of you. And then he goes in and he starts telling them about his way. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is so helpful. He has over and over and over again, Jesus says, you have heard it said. You have heard it taught. And what he's saying is, hey, you've heard some rabbis teach you, but I'm gonna tell you what my way is. So Jesus starts out by saying, hey, you've heard it said, do not murder. But my way is don't even be angry with a brother or a sister. Hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Do not cheat on your spouse. Do not cheat on your wife. <clears throat> but my way is this. I don't even want you to look at a woman lustfully because if you do, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Hey, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But my way, my teaching is I want you to turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you to go one mile, I want you to go two. That's straight out of my old Chick-fil-A handbook. You know what I'm saying? Second I mean, yeah, second mile service. Oh, she worked there. She Okay, she's like, what's up? Yeah, like you ask her for three sauces, she's gonna give you seven. Do you know what I mean? This, yeah, yeah, no, well, no, y'all, okay, y'all getting cheap now, all right. Economy affecting everybody. Okay, so... So I'm gonna ask you to go one mile. Jesus says, my way is I want you to go too. Hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But my way is this, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus say, my way is when you give to those that are in need, I don't want you to do it in a public way as to show off, I want you to do it in secret so that only your heavenly father knows. Hey, my way is this. When you go pray, don't go do it in the public square like all the religious leaders that are trying to show off how good they are at praying. I want you to go to a secret place and do it just with your heavenly father where no one else can hear you. 
I want you to get into a closet by yourself and I want you to pray to your heavenly father. Hey, listen, I don't want you to try to store up things for yourself here on heaven or here on earth. I don't want you to try to accumulate as much stuff and as much money where moth and rust will ultimately destroy. I want you to live in a way, a generous way, where you're storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hey, I don't want you to pay attention to the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye. I want you to pull the plank of wood out of your own eye first. This is my way. So he gives this comprehensive teaching on the best way to be human. Come on, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you'd read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, man, that's the, that's the best way to be human. And then Jesus sums it up, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. He says, so, in everything, in every aspect, in every way, like comprehensive of your entire life, in everything you do and everywhere that you go, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up my way. This is the golden rule. Like your kindergarten teacher didn't make this up. Right here, Jesus did it first. Do to others what you would have them do to you. This is the way for my followers. Other teachers have taught you one way, but I'm here not just to show you a way, but the way to life. And then, Jesus, the master teacher and the master storyteller. He's like kind of winding down. He gets to the very end of his sermon. So right after this moment here, right, he's about to wind it down and Peter comes down and he starts playing the emotional piano music behind him and, and he gives these images, these three consecutive images to drive home his point as to why his way is the best way. Because maybe you're like, cool, Whatever, Samuel, you think his way is the best way. I don't think his way is the best way. He drives home to anybody listening then and to you and me why his way is the best way. He says this in Matthew chapter seven, verse 13. He says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many will enter through it. He says, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Now, what is Jesus saying? This road way, this word, this word road, excuse me, is the same Greek word that Paul used. It actually means the way. So what Jesus is saying here is, hey, listen, I want you to enter through the small gate. Enter through the small gate is an invitation to follow him. And I want you to follow along the narrow road, the narrow way. That's an invitation, the process of ordering your life around him. So I want you to enter in the small gate, follow me, and then I want you to walk along the narrow way. Start to learn how to order your life around mine. And he says, that is the way to life. He's looking at them and he's looking at you saying, listen, there's two ways there's two paths that you can do life. You can go down the wide gate and the broad road. Come on, you don't need me to tell you this. Especially in college, that's gonna be more popular. That's gonna seem a little bit more fun. On the surface, it's gonna seem a little bit more easier. In, in some ways, it's gonna be more convenient. You can go down the broad way. Like, for, for some of you, especially your Jesus followers, what that means is, uh, uh, kind of a religiosity, living for a religion that breeds self-righteousness. 
makes you think you're better than other people. That's the why, that's the, that like, like especially to the, to the people that he was speaking to, the Pharisees who thought they were better than everybody else. Come on, going through the, the wide gate and the, and the broad way is living to where your needs are more important than anybody else. You can live that way to where your self-gratification is the most important thing no matter who it hurts or what you do. Come on, diving head first into the, partying scene and doing all these things. Come on, like I get it. Jesus is saying there's a broad way and there's a way that's gonna seem fun. There's a way that's gonna seem more right. Come on, there's a way where it says revenge and getting even is the best way. It's the most fair way. You can date like everybody else. You can treat other people like everybody else. There is a broad way. And Jesus says, just telling you, that way leads to destruction. And it's not a threat. In fact, that word destruction, a better translation for that word is the word ruin. You can walk down that way, but what you're gonna experience is a lot more regret. What you're gonna experience is a lot more pain. What you're gonna experience are broken relationships. What you're going to experience is a lack of purpose and a lack of fulfillment. What you're gonna experience is a dating life that isn't what you wanted it to be and you're trying to figure out how to pick up the pieces. What you're going to get is trying to live in a way that you're trying to earn your way to God. Jesus is saying, look, there's a, a broad way that you can try and live. But Jesus says, there's another way, though. And the gate is smaller, and the way is narrower, not because it's only available to a few, but because it will be the road far less traveled. But he said, but it is the way that leads to life. And don't miss this, not just eternal life, but life now. Jesus is saying, this is the way that's gonna lead you to experience more peace and more love and more joy and more hope, more self-control, more purpose, fulfillment, contentment, healthier relationships, a flourishing faith and even the rooting out of sin that keeps rearing its ugly head in your life. Jesus says this narrow way is how to experience the full life that I've come to offer you. And come on, it's a life that we ultimately desire. It's not always easy, but Jesus is saying, I'm just telling you, it is better. And there's gonna be moments where the way of Jesus is gonna seem countercultural, counterintuitive, and counterproductive. And you don't need me to tell you that. Come on. If you're seeking to be an apprentice of Jesus, ordering your life around him, especially in college, there's gonna be moments where it's gonna seem countercultural, counterintuitive, and counterproductive. But then in case they missed it, and in case you missed it, he gives us two more images to kind of wind down his sermon. He goes on to use this image of a fruit tree. And he says, hey, there's a a, a a tree that bears fruit and there's a tree that doesn't bear fruit. And the tree that does bear fruit means that something's alive. And he's saying, if you wanna follow in my way, it's like your life resembling a fruit tree that actually bears fruit. There's something life-giving about it. And then he closes the Sermon on the Mount with this illustration. And if you've grown up in church, you've heard this. He contrasts these two builders. And he says there's a wise builder and a foolish builder. And the wise builder the wise builder is the one that actually practices what Jesus taught. 
And the wise builder who actually practices what Jesus taught is like a builder who built his house on a solid rock foundation. And when the storms came, that house stood strong. But then he says, but the other builder is like somebody that hears what I say and does not practice my way, goes down the broad way, does their own thing. And that person is like a builder that built their house on sand. And when the storms came, the house's destruction was complete. Again, Jesus isn't making a threat. He's just saying, I'm just telling you how life works, and I'm trying to put before you the best way to live. And Jesus, who was rabbi then today, is more than rabbi to us. He's the Messiah. He's the resurrected one, and his message is clear. If you want your life to resemble the one who built their house on rock, if you want your time in college to resemble a tree that is alive and fruitful, If you want to experience a fuller life, enter through the small gate and follow along the narrow way. Behind me, Jesus would say, not only believing in me as your savior, but following me as your teacher. So, what I want you to do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start with where you are, not where you think you should be. Because for a lot of us, we're in a lot of different places on this journey. Like for some of us, you might be curious. You might say, hey, I'm in the convinced stage. Or you might even say, I'm committed. No matter where you are, I wanna give you something to do. If you're curious, here's my challenge. I want you to stay curious. Stay curious. Like keep coming back. Keep asking questions. If you're in a small group, ask some questions. Ask some questions to the person that invited you. Maybe go read the Sermon on the Mount. Pick a gospel and read it. Cheat code, Mark's the shortest, right? And just learn about the life of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you take some of what Jesus taught and try to practice it and apply it in your life and see how it goes for you. See what difference it makes in your life. He invited people to follow his way before they believed in who he was. Come on, I want you to stay curious. And if you would say you're convinced or really for anybody and everybody else, here's my challenge to you. I want you to get dusty. Come on, no matter how committed you think you are, come on, where are you not following? How can you and where can you follow more closely? Come on, is it in a way that you love? Is it in a way you love people that you disagree with? Is it in a way that you love your random roommate that you're already like, how do I get out of this? Come on, is it learning how to pull the plank out of your own eye before you try to yell the, the, the speck of dust in somebody else's eye? Come on, is it in self-righteous thinking that makes you think you're better than? Come on, is it in the way you treat people to get whatever it is that you want? Is it the way that you date to get what you want? Come on, in what way are you not following fully? And how can you follow more closely? Because believing in Jesus' name is how you become a Christian. That is true. Don't hear me say anything else. 
but following in Jesus' way is how you be a Christian. That's why I love the mission of our church here at Woodstock City. We wanna inspire people to follow Jesus. Like, do I want you to believe? Yes. Is belief in Jesus enough to get you to heaven? Yes. Do you have to do anything to earn God's love? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I don't want to be just a believer, and I don't want you to be just a believer. I want more for me, and I want more for you. I want you to be a follower that experiences the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer. I want you to be a follower that makes a difference at KSU, that makes a difference in whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in. I want you to be a follower that makes space for Jesus to change you and shape you into who he is. I want you to be a follower that helps establish his kingdom values here on earth. I don't want you to be a believer that just treats earth like a waiting room for heaven. I want you to be a follower that shows the world what heaven will look like. So come on, don't you? The invitation to fullness is there. The invitation to freedom is there. And it's a step beyond belief, but the invitation is for all of us. Stay curious, get dusty, but what if we changed our paradigm and didn't just believe in Jesus as our savior, but began to follow him as our teacher? This is the way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for his goodness. And thank you for his example. Thank you that he showed us how to live. Thank you that he showed us how to human. And thank you that he showed us the way to build our lives on a firm foundation. May you give us the courage to do something with what we've heard tonight. Thank you for these students. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you that you're here. I pray you'd give them the courage to figure out what it might look like to begin to follow. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.